Kabbalah and the Psychology of the Soul, taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. There are two major holidays, periods, in the Jewish calendar. One is the month of Nisan, Pesach, and one is Tishrei. What's the difference between the two, Tishrei and Nisan? Pesach led to Shavuos, the giving of the Torah, the first set of, of tablets of Luchot. While Tishrei represents the second set of tablets, Yom Kippur, the second set of tablets. What's the difference between the two? During the first set of tablets, the Jewish people were tzaddikim, they were righteous, they were innocent, they were pure, they just left Egypt, they were pure, they were newly born. The Tishrei, Yom Kippur, represents, the second set of tablets represents the child who has grown up. He's turned into an adult, loses his innocence, sins, stumbles, breaks down, failure, disappointment, sorrow, anguish, pain, regret, and then reaches a level of Baltruva. On Yom Kippur, you reach a much higher level. The level of the Baltruva is much greater than the level of the Tzaddik. And that's why Tishrei, the letters of the word Tishrei, the man Tishrei, go backwards. Tough. Shin, Reish, because it shows from the bottom up. It shows that the Balshuva is coming back home, is returning home, starting from the end and working his way back. And as the Kabbalists refer to it, that the light that returns is much more powerful than the light that's straight. And the simple analogy is which places are warmer? The lower spots, the valleys? The Dead Sea, or the mountaintops, mountain peaks. Which, place, which places are warmer, which places are cooler? The lower. The lower places. Why? The mountaintop is closer to the sun. The mountaintop should be warmer. Why is the valley the warmest? It's called the reflected light. Because it's the light that bounces back, that gives off the real heat. When the sun is coming millions of miles away, and when it hits the earth and it reflects back, that's where you, that, that moment of impact, that's where you get the intense heat. And that's why the closest you are to the ground, the more intense the heat. And the mountain, which is further away from the ground, gets a lesser level, a lesser degree. And that's the power of Teshuvah. It's the reflective light. It's the light that goes back. It's like the difference between the window and the mirror. The window is straight. But what you see is limited. With the mirror, you can see behind you. Because when the reflective light, when you look back, you can see a lot more. Tishrei represents the Balchuva. So the difference between Pesach, which represents the child, and Tishrei, the difference between a child and an adult. Children are pure. Children are innocent. Children have tremendous qualities. Children are curious by nature. Children are thirsty for knowledge. They absorb like a sponge. They just absorb massive amounts of information. And then we grow up. We lose our innocence. We lose our curiosity. We lose our ability to learn. 
we tell our first lie, and there's no going back. Once you, once you lose it, then there's no going back. So how, how does a person regain his innocence, childlike innocence? And that's what we call, we call marriage. <laughs> In marriage, a person goes back to his childhood and recaptures his childlike innocence. Goes back to the Garden of Eden. Literally. Physically. Not just in the physical sense, but in all, all levels. That he creates a place where there's trust, where he feels he can be vulnerable and no one's going to hurt him. With his unconditional love, that's the meaning of a home, a place you feel at home. Not only externally, an external mansion, but internally, you feel at home because of the love and the relationship and the unconditional love. It's going back to the Garden of Eden. It's not just going back physically to the Garden of Eden before the sin. The husband and wife go back like Adam and Chava, but also emotionally and spiritually, that they can be naked in the emotional sense and spiritual sense and trust each other, they're not going to hurt each other, and they're... but the difference is that they're doing it as adults, not like children. Because although children are innocent and pure, but children don't get married. Children can only receive, they can't give anything. You love children, you can't help but love children. But children can't give back that love. Children can't love someone else, they, they, they are dependent. They are needy, they are dependent. They're, to, it's a, it's a, they're totally in the receiving end. They're not, they don't have the, they're not adults. They don't have the maturity to be able to give back and to reciprocate and to take care of another person. That a person could take the initiative and the person has the strength to take care. Once they are on their own two feet, they're standing on their own two feet, then they could in turn take care of another person and give them that unconditional love and create that space for them and create that home for them. And then you recreate the Garden of Eden, but you recreate it as adults, not as children. And that lasts forever. Because childhood doesn't last forever. Adam was in the Garden of Eden for how long? A few hours, and it was all over. We lose our childhood innocence, but in the wink of an eye, it's all over. We lost it. We lost our Garden of Eden. Not that it was a waste, no, no. Not by, not by, not by any, by no means, it's not a waste. That's, that's a reality, that's a truth. Because our foundation is the Garden of Eden. Our foundation is that purity, that innocence of a child. That child remains with us the rest of our lives. That place remains with us the rest of our lives. There is that, that place of purity and innocence and trusting and, and, and love. And, and, and that place is there. It could be buried and covered up and... But it's there. We can be alienated from it. We can be exiled from it. But that, that core, that's there. And the challenge is to go back. But not to go back to the Garden of Eden. There's no going back. You can't go back. Once you grow up, you're an adult. You can't pretend to be a child again. You're not a child. You have a mind. You're self-aware. You're conscious. You're ego. You're, you have a healthy sense of self. There's no pretending to go back as if, if you don't exist, if there's no ego. You can't put the baby back in the womb. Baby is out. What you could do, as an adult, you can deliberately and consciously choose to recreate that space and do it as an adult. 
And once you master the ability to deliberately and constantly go back home and recreate a garden of Eden in your own house, house, which is why the woman goes to the mikvah because it's bringing in the waters of the garden of Eden, recreating that paradise into the home, bringing it into the home, into the family, bringing that, that purity, then that's forever. Because what's the source of all human misery? Ego. If people had no egos, this world would be a garden of Eden. This world would be heaven. No jealousy, no envy, no hatred, no lies. If all there was was trust and love and goodness and kindness and gentleness, this place would be a garden of Eden. But instead, workplaces, people, people stab each other in the back. People, everyone is jealous of this one, this one is jealous of that one. This one's undermining this one, pretending to be a friend. I mean, the whole workplace is so seething with, with plots and with, uh, with negative energy and nothing gets done. And this one is undermining this one. This one doesn't trust this one. I mean, you can't function. So the ego destroys. It destroys businesses. It destroys families. It destroys friendships. It destroys anything that's good in this world. If people would not have egos, 99% of human misery would be solved. Nothing external can make us happy. Nothing, that's ego. Ego thinks, if I have money, I'll be happy. If I have fame, I'll be happy. If I have externals, I'll be happy. And you get all the externals, and you get all these trappings. And of course, it doesn't make you happy. Which is what the sukkah reminds you. you sukkah says, leave your home. Because the home is not, what, it's not what's going to make you happy. You think you're, you're, you're settled, you're home. The Torah says, leave your house. Live in the sukkah, and you're the happiest person in the world. You have nothing. You and the guest are the same. You feel like a guest in your own sukkah. And therefore you make everyone else feel at home because you are a guest. Because you realize that we are a guest in God's world. And I, it's not about external. It's not about I've accumulated, I've acquired, I have this and I have this and I possess this and I own this and I have this money in the bank and I have this. And I, that's not what gives you security. Your home gives you security. The money in the bank gives you security. That's nothing. The only one that gives you security is Hashem. We're sitting in Hashem's sky. We're sitting under the stars. We're sitting under the schach. We're sitting under the mitzvah, surrounded by Hashem. That's what gives us security. That's what gives us confidence. That's what gives us joy. That's, that's our identity. A person who's able to leave his ego behind, the home that represents his ego, his accumulated wealth. During the fall, when the Jew worked so hard to plant his fields, and finally, Chag HaAsif, he brings all his wealth into the house, and Hashem kicks him out of the house. Now, go live in the sukkah. That's nothing. That's not your wealth. You think you accumulated, you acquired, that's external. Your wealth is from within. Your wealth is because you're sitting in Hashem's little hut. That's, what, that's your wealth. That's what gives you the confidence. That's what gives you strength. That's the foundation of your being. For seven days, we leave our ego at home. And we live in Hashem's time. And we're the happiest people in the world. And we feel the safest and the secure. Safe and secure and joyful and confident. While in the home, we don't feel confident. Because ego is shaky. External, external circumstances are shaky. Today they're here, tomorrow's gone. Hashem, this is reality. But on the other hand, ego is not all negative either. Ego is a neutral force. Ego is a powerful energy. There's more energy on Wall Street than any synagogue I've ever been to, except 770. <laughs> and once we have egos, once Adam and Chav, after they ate from the tree, they acquired an ego. They became aware, self-aware, self-conscious. They grew up, they became adults. They stopped being children, and suddenly they realized they were naked. 
they felt themselves, they became self-aware, not like children or innocent, the pure, they don't even feel themselves, they're not aware of themselves. They became aware of themselves, and suddenly they felt ashamed and naked. There's no going back. You can't go back to the Garden of Eden. But we could do one better. And that is harnessing the ego. Taking that very source, the source of all evil, the source of all friction, the source of everything that's negative in this world, and transforming it into a totally positive. By, by using your ego, your sense of self, your sense of initiative, use that sense of self and take the initiative and deliberately and consciously, independently give another person their unconditional love. Create that marriage, create that home, create that space. Create that garden of Eden. Now you have transformed the negative into a positive. That's forever. The Garden of Eden lasted a few hours. The tzaddik is untested, is unproven. We don't know if he's tested how things will turn out. But the Baltruva, who sinned, who stumbled, who suffered, when he transforms himself, he has transformed the negative into positive then you guarantee this is forever. Because he tasted the other side. And yet he's turned it around and has turned the negative into positive. Bitterness into sweetness. Darkness into light. The sin into amidst. That's forever. So this is the power of Tishrei. The power of Tishrei is the power of, of the Baal You're saying is it, it was divine providence that they built the path? Because... Otherwise, there would, no, there would not be a Baal It's divine providence that Adam sinned. <laughs> As the Medra says, Adam turned to God and he says, you know, you're just looking for excuses. So you blamed it on me. This is part of the divine plan. You blamed it on me, that I chose wrongly and I couldn't resist temptation. But ultimately, this is part of your plan. Because if Adam would not have sinned, he would never have reached the level of the Baltruva. So it's like a covert operation. <laughs> the government will deny any knowledge. We have nothing to do with it. No strings. We've never heard of you. We don't know you. No connection. But the truth is, covertly, of course, everything happens in this world. Everything is divine providence. And ultimately, Hashem wants us to reach the level of the Baltruva which is why he enables, he allows us to sin. He allows us to stumble. And even worse sins. Because he wants us ultimately to transform that negative energy, as we studied in the seventh chapter in Tanya, to transform the negative energy into positive energy. Rabbi Levi Yitzhak the great Hasidic master, explains, and Rosh Hashanah it says, we blow, shofar, after we blow the obligatory sounds, which is 30 sounds of shofar, before davening, we blow another third. Why? To confuse Satan. What do you mean to confuse Satan? How, how do you confuse Satan by blowing shofar? So it actually explains because by showing that we love the mitzvah so much that we're doing beyond our obligation, we're doing another thirty. This confuses Satan. So he explains. What do you mean? Is this confuses Satan? This will cause Satan to stop prosecuting the Jewish people. So the question is, why would this... On the contrary, now he first has to begin prosecuting. He sees that the Jews are so favorably before God, he has to remind God that, listen, how about the sin they did yesterday and the day before? Why would this silence say? And the Blavitsa Badishav explains, because since the Baal Truva 
the highest level of tshuva. As we studied in the seventh chapter of Tanya, it reaches a level where the sins itself become mitzvah. The Satan is terrified. He, he, he closes his mouth. He doesn't want to say a word. Every sin that he's going to mention is going to be turned into a mitzvah. He says, I better keep quiet. I don't want to bring up all the sins. When the Jews show that they love the mitzvah so much, they have such a love relationship with God, that they love him so much, Hashem is going to look for all those sins. Give me all those sins. I want to transform into mitzvahs. He's silent. He's, I, I don't want to mention anything. The Balshuvah who approaches Hashem as an adult, who's not, who lost his innocence, and tries to recapture his childlike, not his childishness, but his childlike innocence and purity. And this is, this is, this is what Mashiach represents. Mashiach represents that we'll go back to the Garden of Eden, but in a higher level. Because Mashiach will be eternal. Once the redemption comes, it'll be forever. Why is Mashiach forever? Adam wasn't in Gan forever. He lasted a few hours. So maybe Mashiach will come for a few days, and then we'll, God forbid revert back. Why will, why will Mashiach be forever? Because Mashiach represents the marriage of the Jewish people and God. Mashiach will come as a result from the bottom up, from us realizing and recognizing and as, as adults taking the initiative and choosing and deliberately and consciously choosing to enter into a relationship with Hashem. Using our egos, our sense of initiative, harnessing that powerful energy for the right direction. By not being a passive Jew. The tzaddik is passive. He receives. God, like a child. God gives and he receives. Passive. He sits in this community. Observes. Obeys. Is pure. Is innocent. Doesn't leave the walls of his community. Doesn't go beyond the confines of his community. Listens. Is a good Jewish boy. A good Jewish girl. Does exactly what Hashem wants him to do. That's beautiful. But the Baal doesn't sit passively. The Balshuva is an activist. He doesn't wait for instructions. He takes initiative. Maybe I could reach another Jew. Maybe let me go out, let me use my initiative, let me, let me create something, let me do something, let me attract something, let me try to... to, to. You don't wait for instructions. Or for, you go ahead and you use your initiative, you use your sense of ego, you use your sense of, of adulthood to go and to take charge and to make it your own. Because the Valtruva, it's his own. He owns it. Paid the ultimate price, and he owns it. And if something is your own, you don't wait for an issue. If you're a worker, you wait. You do exactly as you're instructed. Nothing more, nothing less. You can even work 18 hours a day. You can be so, such a dedicated worker, you work 18 hours a day. But you follow instructions. After 18 hours, you close the book, you go home. The owner, he he's not working 18 hours, it's 24-7. He doesn't wait for instructions. He doesn't wait for what's conventional, not conventional. He's constantly thinking and scheming and he takes the initiative and how do I expand and grow? I'm not going to wait till a customer comes to me. I'm going to make sure to get the word out. That's the difference if Yiddishkeit is your own, if you're married to it, or it's, it's holy, Hashem commands me, I have to do the right thing, and that's, uh, and that's it. That's very limited. That's the child. That's the tzaddik. The Baltruva is the adult who's married to God, who has a personal, intimate relationship with God, who takes it personally, who owns it, who takes the initiative, who uses his ego to deliberately and consciously recreate and give to God, not just wait passively for Hashem to command them and to instruct them, but takes the initiative and gives something back and does something, takes an active position and even pushes the envelope, trying to increase the awareness of Hashem 
and trying to make people aware of Hashem. That's the adult. That was the Rebbe's approach, the activist approach. That's the Hasidic approach. Not to wait passively for Mashiach to come, but to take the activist approach. We're partners. It's a partnership. Marriage is a partnership. It's to do. It's yours. What am I doing about it? Of course Mashiach is in Hashem's hands and we're not letting Hashem off the hook. <laughs> Hashem has to do what He has to do and He hasn't done it yet. And the proof is we're still sitting in exile. The temple has not been rebuilt. But we're going to do what we have to do. We're not going to wait. That's the sign of an adult. That's the sign that it's a marriage. That's the sign that it's personal. It's a partnership. It's my own. Not past. That's the difference in the innocence of the child of Nisan and the giving of the first set of the commandments, Shavuos, which is a continuation of Nisan of Pesach, and Rosh Hashanah Elul, Rosh Hashanah, which is the Balchuv, after we sinned with the golden calf, and after we were shattered, the tablets were shattered, and our relationship was shattered, and there was a severance, and there was a crisis, and there was a pain, and a poignancy, and then, out of that comes Yom Kippur. It's like when there's a crisis in the relationship and then you discover a deeper level in the relationship and you reconcile and you come back, a reunion even stronger than before because you discover a new depth. That's Yom Kippur. That's Rosh Hashanah. That's Sukkot. That's the marriage. And that's the joy. That's the tremendous joy. Because the joy is the novelty. Marriage is a novelty. That's the joy. That we're able to give something back to God. So it's, it's a joyous occasion. And that's why we express the marriage of the Jewish people on Hashem, on Sukkot, in the most joyous way, Simchas Pesach Sheev, and the ultimate joy, which is Simchas Teir, which gives us joy for the rest of the year. And the Sukkah represents Hashem's hug. When you kiss someone in the face, you love their, their face, you love their mind, you love their brain, you love their looks, you love their... the overt qualities. But when you love someone totally, you hug them. What's a hug? A hug is you embrace the back. When you love a person totally, you love them completely. You love every part of them. Not just, you love every part of them. And that's represented in the sukkah. Because the sukkah is the only mitzvah in the Torah that permeates the entire person. In a sense, even more than mikvah. Mikvah also, you have to immerse yourself totally under water. Not even one here could be sticking out. But mikvah, it's just you. A sukkah, you bring in you and your clothes and your boots and even the mud under your feet. And what's a mitzvah in the sukkah? The mitzvah in the sukkah is not just to study Torah. You're reading a newspaper, read it in the sukkah. You're taking a walk in the sukkah. You're relaxing in the sukkah. You're having a cup of tea, you're having conversation in the sukkah. Everything you do should be in the sukkah. Everything you do suddenly becomes a mitzvah. The most mundane things. I'm not doing anything Jewish. I'm not doing anything godly. I'm not doing, I'm reading a paper. But everything is embraced in our relationship with Hashem. It means it's an expression of the fact that the relationship is so total that it affects our whole being. Everything we do becomes part of Godliness. It's not compartmentalized. Not just when we're engaged in holy activities. Every aspect of our life, even the mud in our feet, everything that we're doing is all permeated because it's all part of a relationship. A relationship, a marriage is a total commitment. It's not just 9 to 5. It's 24-7. Every aspect of our being, every fiber of our body, every bone in our body, every fiber of our being, everything is permeated and connected with Hashem. That's the ultimate expression of Hashem's love for the Jewish people. And the Jewish people's love for Hashem. 
So this is one of the most profound holidays, most joyful holidays. The nature of joy, it breaks through all boundaries. It's a joy here below, and it's a joy above. It's called Zman Simcha Sena, the time of our joy. It's a mutual joy. We rejoice with God, and God rejoices with us. We see God, and God sees us. Because it's a mutual relationship. The previous Lubavitcher, we asked his father, the fifth Lubavitcher, Rebbe, Shalom Dover, so what do we do now? We just finished the month of Elul, doing tshuva, saying slichot, and Rosh Hashanah, blowing the shofar, and the ten days of the shuva, and Yom Kippur, and we reach the highest level, the fifth level of the soul, on the Ila. What do we do now? He says, oh, now we first have to begin doing tshuva. What do you mean first have to begin doing tshuva? We just, we just spent 40 days going from level to level to level. What do you mean? Now we have to start it all over again? What's the... There's a beautiful story told of Rabbi Sadia Gaon, one of the greatest Goenim of a thousand years ago in Iraq. And he, he was once stayed at an inn and in those days, people had no pictures. People didn't know. He didn't know. Rabbi Sadi Goyen was famous. He was the greatest Jew in his day and age. He was like the Moses of his generation. But he never saw him. And he didn't introduce himself. He stayed at the inn. He checked in. And he was a nice person. He treated all his guests very nicely. And he treated them also very nicely. Gave them a room. Treated them fairly. And that's it. But then he saw hundreds of people came to the hotel. They heard that the Rabbi Sadi Goyen is in town. And they're looking. Where's the rabbi? Where's the rabbi? You know who's staying in your hotel? He realized he's the, the most illustrious Jew is staying in his hotel and he, he, didn't, he, he didn't treat him with proper respect. He treated him very respectfully. But he didn't. So he comes into him, he says, Rabbi starts crying, please forgive me. He, says, he looks at him, forgive you for what? He says, because I didn't treat you with respect. He says, well, no, it's not true. You treated me very respectfully. Well, what do you mean? You, you didn't treat me disrespectfully. He says, no, Rabbi treated you like an ordinary person. I could treat everyone else. I didn't know who you are. I didn't know that you are the great of Sadiqah. If I would have known, I had to treat you with extraordinary respect, give you the red carpet treatment. I just treat you like everyone else. That's disrespect. Sadiqah told the students, this taught me a tremendous lesson. Because the same is true with Hashem. Because every day we grow in wisdom. So every day I have a deeper understanding of who Hashem is. So I realize that the way I treated Hashem yesterday is almost insulting. Of course I treated Hashem yesterday with respect. But, but I didn't realize who Hashem is. So I treated Him with respect based on my limited understanding yesterday. But now they have a much deeper understanding and a much deeper appreciation of who Hashem is. That's, that's the way I treated Him. That's disrespectful. So every day you have to do tshuva. Not that I sinned. But every day as you grow... So that's what the Rebbe Rashab says. After, Yerush, after Elul, and after Rosh Hashanah, and after 10 days of Truva, and after Yom Kippur, you reach such a high level of understanding of godliness. And this is the way you treated Hashem. Oh, now you first have to do Truva. <laughs> now you first have to ask forgiveness. Hag Kabbalah and the Psychology of the Soul taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky.